This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Some of the topics are addiction, fear, faith, self-compassion, relationships, codependency, emotional intelligence, and more. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. If you have ever dieted for more than a few days, you know why diets fail in the long run. They lead to feeling deprived, frustrated, and unsatisfied around food. An unpleasant state of internal imbalance becomes part of our daily experiences. But if dieting isn't the answer to permanent weight loss, then what is? If you want to find and maintain a healthy weight, you have to stop using food to make yourself feel better. You need to break the habitual response between I feel, I eat, mood and food, feeling and feeding. Karen R. Koenig.com Karen R. K-O-E-N-I-G.com And she is my guest, Karen R. Koenig. She's a psychotherapist with an expertise in eating psychology. The how and why, not the what of eating. Karen has over 30 years of experience working in this field. And she is a popular blogger and also an award-winning international author of seven books on eating weight, and body image. Karen views eating normally and healthfully as part of self-care, something that we cannot do without having effective life skills, personality traits that support wisdom and success, and solving intra-psychic issues that might be conscious or unconscious, all of which Karen has devoted books to. To read Karen's full biography, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Here is the interview with Karen R. Koenig. In your own words, who is Karen R. Koenig? A psychotherapist a blogger, 
an author, a person who's on a mission to teach people how to eat normally, uh, which means to have a positive relationship with food and connect to appetite signals. I also do other kinds of writing and creative things. So that would be my professional self. What would you say about your personal self? I am um, funny, political, a deep thinker, an extrovert who also does fine being alone. I enjoy alone time. I like quiet time. I like to be social. I love creating. I love my work. Um, it is sort of hard, hard to separate the two because... I feel I'm very fortunate that I get to do two things that I just love, which is you know, being with clients and um, writing. And so it's not like I have this professional self and a personal self. It feels very melded together for me because it becomes what is my life. Yeah, integrating both sounds good to me. My official first question to you is about health in general. Do you have an unconventional definition for what is to be a healthy person? We have to remember that health is is more in some ways subjective than objective. It's not only the lab numbers, but it's how you live your life, how you feel about your life. Uh, in fact, I, I, just to give you an example, I, I take dance classes and there's a woman in my class who has stage four lung cancer who is just vibrant and alive and she lives every minute. I mean, I don't see her all the time. I see her in class as opposed to people I know who are actually quite what we would call healthy and they're just, there's just no spark there. There's no joie de vivre. To me, health has to do with your physical condition and your mental slash slash emotional condition. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Where does food obsession or food addiction lead us? Not to a good place, I can tell you that. You know, on the one hand, I say that but sort of glibly, but I would say that the resolution of it or, for, you know, the recovery from it leads us to our best selves and our best lives. So it's like a door opening because eating problems are not just about eating. They're not just about food and our relationship with food. They're about every other aspect of um, our lives. It can lead us down a, you know, a very sad, in some ways tragic path. And sometimes if it's dealt with properly, it just can lead to joy and contentment and something you never dreamed you'd have. So what would you say are the, um, the consequences of food obsession? Would you say depression, also mental illnesses, being overweight, we already know? I think that some of these things are there beforehand. So I would say that probably 100% of my clients and I've been doing this for over 30 years, so I've seen a lot of clients, they come in with an underlying anxiety problem, depression, um, OCD, PTSD, some bipolar. And like with other 
um, behaviors, they use food to medicate it. That, of course, can exacerbate their depression or anxiety because then they have negative feelings about themselves or their place in the world and their values, and round and round we go. Being mentally obsessed with anything is a really awful feeling. I'm uh, a half a lifetime recovered from chronic dieting, overeating, binge eating, about uh, a year and a half of be, uh, having bulimia. As I tell clients, there's just about nothing they can do in any of those areas that I haven't done before. Just being obsessed about anything takes you away from the present moment. It, it puts you in some altered state that um, is only going to cause you pain. Yeah, that's um, really great that you have personal experience so you know what other people go through. It's a good meld for me of the personal and the professional. Uh, you just mentioned the present moment. What is to be in the present moment? I would say aware with your senses and with your heart, with your thinking, uh, to just be wherever you are. Wow. Is it possible? For brief periods of time. Is it possible to stay there forever? I don't think so. Um, I can't speak for, for monks and people who are really trained in meditation. But, you know, for, for probably the people in your audience and most people, um, no, that's not attainable and that's not even the purpose of it. It's to spend as much time there as you can and to be aware of that's where you want to be. There's only, you know, most people don't even think, think about not being in the present. It wouldn't occur to them. They'll go through their whole lives and never think of it. So if you can think of it and then gradually spend more time in the present moment, you know, that's a triumph. Yes, um, I would say so. I heard it's about not being in the past or the future, embracing everything that's happening now. But also that sounds to me like concentration because some people are very good at it, concentration and focusing because they're so interested in whatever they're doing in this moment that they will stay here. But what about when this moment brings us pain? I think that's the real test to be present, right, with everything. It depends on your perception and your set of assumptions. If, if you assume that you're going to have things that are pleasurable and not pleasurable in life, and you're just going to experience them, um, which is, you know, as you well know, it's not, not part of Western culture, not as we've been taught it, um, if you've been taught that, it's very easy to, to just float. Well, I can't say it's easy. It's easier to float along and take what comes up. You know, one moment you're, I don't know, sitting in a canoe in the middle of a, a beautiful lake. You know, it's a perfect day. And, you know, later you come back, uh, you've been camping and you find that your belongings have been stolen. I mean, it's all just life being willfully, intentionally willing to experience it all is a huge commitment to say, I'll show up for myself no matter what happens, not just for the pleasurable things. And we're not taught to do that. We're pulled away from that. 
in our culture. And um, it makes it much harder to do. But in the end, it, it really is the best way to live. Yes, if we can experience that and, and understand, right? Yes, all our experiences. I mean, we have to like them. And, you know, I am not a believer in saying, well, this happened for a purpose. This happens because things happen. And so what can you get out of it? You know, maybe nothing. But maybe, as you say, maybe it could be a gift or a treasure. But you don't know unless you really experience it. And you don't know at the time. Western culture does this, you know, weird thing of wanting to know, you know, what's going to happen? Is this the right thing? But I heard a quote by someone once, I, I don't remember what culture, but that people really only understand their lives when they're near the end of it. And they can look back and see what everything had to do with everything else. We can't know now. We can only know after it's gone by. Ah, and that's why towards the end of the interview, I have some questions to ask you that I ask myself pretty much every day. And I ask everyone I meet. So all my guests, I ask them those specific questions. Um, I'll get them. Talking about being in the present moment and accepting everything and just being present regardless, like you said, being good or bad, that kind of makes me think about fear seems like we're just too afraid of ourselves and knowing ourselves and what life is really about. So what is the purpose of fear? This is my first question to you. The second is, what fears are real and which ones are self-created? Well, I, I mean, I, I think I will answer, you know, the, what you're asking, but I'm going to present it in a different way. We, we have an innate instinctual fear mechanism from, you know, that's centered in our limbic system, which is at the top of the spinal cord. And pretty much all of us are born with it. And then it's nurtured one way or the other. But for most people, if you're out in the woods and a bear charges at you, you do not have to think about it. Your, your, you know, cortisol increases, your, your breathing becomes harder and you run. So that's fear. What seems to bother most people, at least the clients that I deal with and what I look at myself, is anxiety. And anxiety is different. Anxiety is a, is a perception of threat to self. And that comes from an analysis of past activities. So it, you can see that that's very different than being charged. You know, what, if you go to a party where people like you is very, and that's anxiety, which is very different from having a bear charge at you. So in my experience, most of what bothers us may be fear based to an extent, the idea that we're, we're hardwired to want to belong. But let's say the idea of going to a party and nobody will talk to you or people won't like you, you're wearing the wrong thing, you'll say the wrong thing. That's really anxiety based. And it's, you know, it's the tales we tell ourselves. And it's because of our experiences, which is different than what's hardwired. Mm. Wow. So from your own experience, what can get us to the point of erasing or coping with this kind of anxiety? Well, again, the way I view it is that anxiety is a perception. Our 
fears or the things that happen to us that trigger true fear. Now, I'm not a scientist, so this is you know my basic interpretation. The memories are stored in our amygdala, and the purpose of the amygdala is to be a real generalist. And if anything comes close to whatever you experience, let's say, oh, I don't know, you fell off your bike when you were younger and you almost got hit by a car. So that memory is stored. Well, now if you go on a bike and you're 37, you might feel fear because the amygdala is saying, hey, keep away from bikes. Look what happened last time you went on a bike. But the brain, when it's fully formed, which is not till our late 20s, can override that and say, you know, thank you for that thought. Thanks. But it's really not applicable right now. I'm on a very safe street. I really know how to ride my bike. um, And there's no cars on the street. So I'm going to be safe. So if you can translate that, deciding whether you're in recall, you know, which is um, triggered by the memory or reality, that's the first step in dealing with fear and anxiety. And I can talk more about it, but that's the basic way that I approach that with myself and with clients. Right. Wow. That takes a lot of awareness. So I heard that traumatic learning, which leads to PTSD, post-traumatic disorder, that's so powerful, isn't it? Because that's traumatic learning. That's really hard to unlearn. Yes. First of all, for anybody listening, if if you have had what are called um, ACEs, which is uh, adverse childhood experiences, which is you know, trauma, abuse, neglect. Um, the most effective form of therapy, and I think that people who have had traumas definitely need psychotherapy, is something called rapid resolution therapy. And you can look it up online. It's called RRT. Um, there are a lot of RRT um, clinicians around the, the country and around the world. So I highly recommend that. Um, It's extremely effective in uh, resolving trauma. And um, what I was talking about with recall and reality is based on those ideas of of Dr. John Conley, who came up with it. Um, People can overcome or resolve trauma by realizing they don't need to have the reaction that they're having because it was in the past and the past is gone. That, you know, take, this takes us back to the present. You know, are we safe in the present? And most of the time we are in spite of the fact that we might not have been safe in the past. You know, we're safe now because we can choose people for the most part we want to be with. We have a fully formed brain the situation is different. We've learned from the first time. I mean, there's, you know, any number of differences. So sometimes just realizing that can make a shift to bring us back into the present to say, you know, I'm safe right now. I don't need to have fear. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, RRT. Thank you. Um, what is the difference between feelings and emotions? I mean, for intents and purposes, they are they're used interchangeably. I, I'm not. I'm not sure that um, parsing them and is really helpful to people. So I would use them interchangeably. A, a feeling is a sensation that that 
or an emotion is a sensation that calls attention to itself. Um, it's part biochemical. For instance, I always pick on bears. You know, you have a bear charge you in the woods. Actually, do you know somebody actually once uh, called me on that and said, bears are, us- are very gentle creatures. Please don't keep maligning them. <laughs> so, you know, our chemistry starts to work. And that brings on an emotion of fear. Um, or, um, you know, then the reaction, flight or freeze or fight. Seeing, you know, somebody you have a crush on walk across the street towards you, that brings on a chemical reaction. We, you know, we don't really realize that this is happening, but um, there's a lot of chemistry going on beyond emotions. So I hope that answers your question. What is the relationship between emotional health and food? That's a great question. People can be generally high-functioning and sort of emotionally healthy. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't look at them and say, oh, boy, something's going on there, Um, and have food uh, problems or a poor relationship with with food. And and I want to remind people who, who have what I call dysregulated eating, there are people who have many worse problems than eating problems. Um, So mental health or physical health isn't based on whether or not you have or don't have an eating problem. When we are born, the first thing we do, one of the first things is to cry out for food and to be held. And for the most part, when you're fed by breast or bottle, those two things come together. And um, so what they, they say is that Brains, the neurons, those that fire together, wire together, so the two become associated, eating and comfort, eating and comfort. And then if you have a a family that does turn to food a lot for comfort, that gets even reinforced more. Certainly our culture and the food industry try to help that along. So after a while, it becomes indistinguishable, you know, feeling and wanting food. one immediately brings on uh, the other. Mm. How do we know for sure, if it is possible, that we are having this unhealthy relationship with food? It depends. Unhealthy is on a long continuum. It could be someone who overeats when they go to parties. But other than that, they have a pretty good relationship with food. Or it could be somebody who uh, binges every night and purges every night or starves themselves or goes from one diet to another uh, only to regain the weight and need to diet and lose it again, which is called weight cycling. So there are certain behaviors done as a pattern over a long period of time, which we call eating disorders. I call it dysregulated eating because it's either about too much, too little, what's enough. It always goes back to knowing ourselves, listening to the body. It might be what we talked earlier about being present, being aware of what's happening now, how do I feel? And that kind of, there's another question I want to ask you about feelings and emotions. What is the purpose of feelings and emotions when it comes to food? Well, they're actually separate systems. I mean, 
One is your appetite system to nourish. And humans have a built-in part of our DNA. We have two biological imperatives for our species. One is to reproduce and the other is to eat enough food to survive. You know, they're the things that are hardwired, that um, self-discipline doesn't work for, because biology will always win out. If you think about the, the difference between the two, that's appetite is very different than your feelings. Um, the purpose of emotions, uh, the purpose of eating is to nourish ourselves enough to survive as a race. The purpose of emotions is the same as senses, to know enough about the environment. Senses help us and emotions do too, to see whether it's going to cause us pain or pleasure. You know, if you smell a rose, it's wonderful, or, you know, any, another kind of flower or the ocean or the air after a rain, that, that brings us pleasure. If you're walking um, barefoot, where I live in Florida, you can get bit, bitten by red, red ants. That tells you, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah. You know, it hurts. And, or, and that's the same as if you have a friend who repeatedly disappoints you and you feel disappointed it causes you pain that's telling you don't do that again so it, they're very different systems the emotions tell us they prompt us to do something to keep us safe to go towards pain and not pleasure food is yeah it's part pressure but pleasure but it's really there to nourish us Oh, I agree 100% with that. The only thing when it comes to emotions could be misleading in the sense of people with traumas. So, yeah, it makes sense to take care of, of issues that we might have because if we're traumatized by something, that means we'll be always triggered, right, by association. You mentioned a treatment that work effectively and help a lot of people with traumatic problems and memories. I think that, that, you know, people who are traumatized, there are treatments that help more than others. A lot of the treatments that, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, it's a wonderful book by Randall Ness, I think, N-E-S-S-E. And he talks about tra trauma treatments that some of them try to encode by repeating the trauma, over, talking about the trauma over and over again. It encodes it more deeply in our memory. And that's not what we want. Some therapies do that. I don't, I don't think they do that much anymore. They understand that we don't want to do that. It's like if you put your hand in the sand, the wave washes over it, and eventually there's no impression. That's what you want so that the, you can remember the incident, the facts that happened without the affect, without the feelings that go along with it. And that's why this idea of realizing, you know, that it is just your brain reacting. It does take tremendous awareness, but it's, it's a real relief for people. For instance, who are talking about horrible things in my office and I can see them having trauma reactions. And I say to them, are you safe right now? And they'll look around and they'll say, yeah. And then we'll talk more about how they can feel safe because the trauma reaction is to tell you you're not safe, but you are safe once it's over. 
um, it really, it pushes you to use a different part of your mind to evaluate safety. And the amygdala is really not very reliable. It, it is for initial fears, but we need to then take over and say, wait a minute, you know, what is going on here? Right. Do you think that by eating healthy, that might help the amygdala so we, they won't be triggered as often? No, I think, again, they're two different systems. It's great to eat nutritiously, but it's not in, in itself isn't going to be a major factor in resolving the trauma. Now, doing things like, I believe, omega-3s and B vitamins are good for the brain. They might help in that sense. But the you know, to answer your question, I, I don't think that there's a direct causation between nutritious eating and resolving trauma. I wish there were. Right. It might help in the process. Yeah. Maybe therapy with combination, right? Combining them. Yes. Um, but just because somebody is eating more healthfully is really not going to help them resolve the trauma. It's a different, uh, it's a different route to get to that. That's true. Oh, I take myself as an example. Yeah, I was doing everything right, exercising, eating really healthy, and I still had problems with my childhood traumas. They were still there, despite of me looking really healthy. What is to become emotionally healthy? Uh, you know, again, there are different definitions of that. Uh, some of the things, again, this is not an exhausted, exhaustive complete list, to be able to regulate emotions, to be able to enjoy intimacy. And I, I, I don't mean just, you know, sexual, emotional intimacy, which means being able to be vulnerable, to be able to stand up for yourself, to be able to be both dependent and independent. But most people find independence much more comfortable they're not so crazy about being dependent and yet i know in life to to really have a, a healthy emotional life we need to be able to do both so that they're value neutral um to live in pride not shame to not spend a lot of time you alluded to this in the beginning of the interview uh, you know either thinking about the past or the future but to be conscious, to have self-compassion and compassion for others. Um, I think to find meaning in life, you can call it work or whatever you want. It, um, a lot of it, you know, sometimes it's creativity. To be connected to other people, have a sense of community. Those are some off the top of my head. Yeah, I like that very much. Um, intuitive eating. Have you heard about it? Yes, in fact, it was one of the things that helped me recover from my own uh, overeating um, and binge eating. It's a movement that's international, and it, there's nothing new about it. It started, I believe, in the 80s. For instance, the first book I read about it was called Fat is a Feminist Issue. And, oh, God, there's just been hundreds of books written since. Uh, it means that you 
have a system that's hardwired into your body, or it is for most of us when we're born, to know when we're hungry, what we want to eat, to feel pleasure from food, and to stop when we're full and satisfied. I describe those as the rules of normal eating in my uh, first book, which is a book of the same title, that we don't need rules, diet rules, to tell us how much to eat that our body senses it and says, gee, my body, you know, I feel good with this amount of food, or I feel really awful when I eat that amount of food, or I'm hungry now, or I'm not really hungry, even though everybody else is hungry, my body's saying no. It's, um, it's so different than our current culture, which is so external, unfortunately, rather than internal. And internal is a lot of what you're talking about. Right. Oh, yes. Self-knowledge and awareness. It goes back to that. Like every time I try to solve any complicated issue of my own, it just goes back to that, being more intuitive. Right. And even the minor ones or to make sure the minor ones don't become major. Yeah. And I totally agree with you. And I worry when people hear inward, which is the same thing I teach them, that then they think, well, I have to do it all myself. That's not part of being healthy. Some things, you know, I, yeah, most of us can tie our shoes ourselves. But, you know, when it comes to our car dying on the road, we need to call it AAA or call somebody. So it's having that balance of knowing, you know, when to get the answers from going inward and when to say, boy, I need some help with this. And then building the two together to take you to your next step. Mm. And that's what you, you talked about before, about vulnerability, knowing that we also need other people. Connection, the human connection is healthy. It's good for us. The more we go in a word, in that sense, Karen, the more we expand and then we reach out to others uh, so in a healthy way. Yes. I, I think because we become, if I'm understanding you right, I believe what happens is we become comfortable with our own vulnerability, that we can be vulnerable with ourselves and tolerate it and not shame ourselves or get filled with regret. And so if we can do that with ourselves, then we test it out with other people. Yes, I think that does happen. Right. Um, so I'll be asking you my last questions. Now it's unrelated to the subject of food obsession and emotional eating. Do you have something else to say? Just that I encourage people, I invite people to visit my website, which is karenarcanig.com, to uh, watch my videos, read my books, I blog three times a week, sign up for my blogs, join my Facebook page. You know, really for people having eating problems, and again, I say this as somebody who was, you know, recovered from, for me, very, very painful eating problems. It really is very doable by stopping dieting, by looking inward, by getting help, by reading about what works long time, which is not restricting food and paying attention to other parts of your life that haven't developed because of your um, food problems. So I just hope that everyone can have hope that 
with the right kind of treatment and experiences, they can become normal leaders. Mm, yeah. Thank you for that. I love what you said. Um, what is your definition of spirituality? As spirituality to me occurs in the brain, that we have experiences that blur boundaries, that create awe in us, make us feel connected to call it the, the universe. Um, we may feel connected to the woods around our house or a good friend or chill our children. To me, that's what spirituality is. It's a, it's a wonderful feeling in your brain that translates into exceptional, pleasurable emotions. Mm-hmm. What is another word for healing? It's, that's a hard one. Living mindfully. That's uh, two words I know. But um, living mindfully, consciously in the present. Uh, what is love to you? Well, again, it's part chemistry because we know that when you know people uh, do brain scans of uh, people who are in love or fat infatuated. I'll tell you what my mother said when I asked her what love was. Not that I agree with her, but she was a little right. She said, um, love is the feeling that you feel when you're about to feel the feeling, a feeling you've never felt before. Oh, my God. That's complicated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's cute. <laughs> it makes you feel good about yourself and the other person in a, in a healthy way. And it's a very exceptional feeling. It, it's not for everyone. I mean, it shouldn't be felt towards everyone. You want to save it for what's very special. How do you define success? It's different for each person. I, I'm not big on externals. So you want to think, is, has my life been successful? I would think, you know, have you had a lot of satisfying, meaningful, pleasurable moments? You get to define success yourself. Plus, we all, we all start at very different places. It's not an, an even playing field. So what's successful for one person, which maybe, you know, I didn't have the same tragedies that my I had as, um, as a child, might be different for somebody who had a wonderful upbringing and can really do a lot more in life to be happy and having a meaningful life. The problem with the definition of success might be the collective one, money and fame and physical beauty and all that. Absolutely. Yes, right. That, um, well, but that's when I always go back to that, like, we got to know ourselves, think for ourselves, be more intuitive. Um, so what was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? I think it's the one that we've all had to learn, which is we can only change ourselves. We can't change other people. And it's not like you learn it and you go, oh, great. Don't need to think about that again. It, it's hardwired into us to want control and to want others to change because then we don't have to. So it's always out there as a lesson, but it's easier once you've learned it and really understand it, then you can welcome it and say, oh, there it is again. Okay, here it is. I'm going to handle it the, you know, the way that's going to be healthiest. What is to be strong? a funny word because I hear that a lot. I once had a woman bring her mother in 
And she was telling me how strong her mother was. And sure enough, her mother comes in. She says, you know, nice to meet you. I just want you to know I'm a really strong person. She sits down and she bursts into tears. And so I said to her, you are. I said, you're really strong to cry in front of somebody that you never met before. So, you know, strength is not what we think. And I think it is, you know, it usually means keeping your stuff to yourself, always succeeding, managing other problems, appearing to be healthy when you're not. It's very overrated, uh, unless you're in a wrestling contest. And it's important to be strong. <laughs> right, right. True. <laughs> Um, if you knew you would die soon, would you change anything about your life or do anything differently? Um, probably not. I'm pretty happy with my life as it is. I, I've never been one. I, to, I don't have goals. I don't have a bucket list. Pretty much every day is good. Do you believe in life after death? No. Hmm. Oh, wow. Do you wish for some sort of existence? No, no. I'm, this is a good life. When when I'm done with it, I will know. And it, it's just fine that it's like it. I don't get any comfort from the idea of life after death. I, um, I get comfort in experiencing life as it is, knowing it's finite for me and everybody. Wow. That's profound, Karen. Very profound. <laughs> it's not an original thought, however. Well, it's rare. Sure. What are three things about life you know for sure? This is my last question. That it's up to me, no matter what happens, to make my life better. That it's my inner world that I'm in charge of, not the external circumstances that dictate how I feel. I'm certain of that. I'm certain that um, my husband loves me deeply. I'm certain that I just have this one life and I and that I want to make the best of it. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. I found it most interesting. <laughs> and before you go, again, where can we find more information about you, your books, services, and future projects? My website is karenrkanig.com. Uh, you can sign up for my blogs there. Uh, there's a link to my Facebook page. Uh, all my seven books are uh, on there. I have a um, middle of signing a contract for an eighth book, which I hope will come out next year. Uh, I practice in Sarasota, Florida. Uh, and um, so I do in-person and I do teletherapy within the state because I'm licensed only within Florida. If you live in Florida and want to do therapy, um, you can give me a call and go to my website. That's about it. Thank you so much again, Karen. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye. For listening to learn more about Karen R. Koenig, please visit her website, KarenRKoenig.com. That is Karen K-A-R-E-N-R-K-O-E-N-I-G.com.
To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Thank you.